Well, if you're wondering what the green book is all about, um, the wait is over. It is a Quran. Uh, no, we're not changing our doctrinal statement. Um, we are. Uh, we're going to be. We've been going through uh, systematic theology, and um, we've gone all the way through Christology, and so we've dealt with the doctrine of Christ. Uh, We left off on the threefold office of Christ. The next doctrine uh, that we're going to study is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of halfway, that's the halfway mark in systematic theology. So, um, talking with Pastor Chris, we've been talking about this forever. And um, uh, we just thought it was a good time to sort of break up the monotony and, and uh, take a break from systematic theology and, uh, and, and tackle the subject of Islam that we've been wanting to talk about for so long now. So uh, what this is going to be is, I don't know, several weeks on, on Islam. And, um, and what I hope to really accomplish here is that we become aware, that we become equipped that we become conversant with the religion of, Is- of Islam uh, because it is so, so relevant and it's becoming increasingly relevant. Um, trying to think here. 1997, I read my first book on Islam. And after that, I be- became fascinated uh, with the religion of Islam and through street evangelism, I uh, began engaging Muslims uh, on a one-on-one basis, talking to them about Islam and trying to reason with them. Um, I have a good friend uh, by the name of Joshua Lingle. He's a professor at uh, Biola University. He taught at Talbot Seminary and other places. And uh, uh, Josh really took me under his wing as far as Islam. I, I kind of got more serious about Islam than most people. <laughs> I, I got very, very, very interested in it. And I, be quite honest, there was a point in my life where I almost devoted my life to Islamic studies because um, uh, I view Islam as the greatest threat on earth. Uh, I don't know how else to put it. I think secular humanism is the greatest threat to a culture, a society. But Islam, I think, is the greatest threat on the planet. And there's many reasons for that uh, that we're going to look at. But um, you know, with that said, uh, probably for the first few years of me studying Islam, uh, it was kind of a lonely endeavor. Not too many people were really into Islam. You know, they kind of thought, like, why are you reading all these books on the textual criticism of the Quran, and why are you studying all this stuff for? And then a very, very significant event took place. Do you know what I'm talking about? 9 11 hit, and suddenly everyone wanted to know about Islam. What is it? Who are these people? Why were they yelling, God is great, as they flew, you know, uh, uh, airliners into those buildings? You know, what, is dri- what would drive a person like this? Are these people mad? And come to find out, of course, that the people that did those types of things, many of them were highly educated, and many Muslims who are, you know, high-level terrorist-type Muslims, many of them are PhDs, they're very educated. Many of them attend Al-Azhar, which is the, greatest, the biggest university in the world, in Cairo, Egypt, almost 170,000 Muslim students. And many of them have PhDs in Islamic law. These are not dumb people. Uh, and so I thought, you know, I need to study this more. And so I did. I ended up teaching some classes at our old church about it. Um, <clears throat> but now more than ever, and I would say ever since 9-11, um, you and I have not known the news. We have not known the media. We have not known... Um, the internet really without the presence of Islam. I don't know if you know that, but after 9-11, I don't think that you've ever, if you watch the news on a regular basis, that you have watched uh, the news without talking about a religion. (laughs) You know, try that with any other religion. Uh, Let's say Hinduism. Well, we go days and days and days and days and maybe years and not hear anything about Hinduism on CNN or Fox News or whatever. Uh, but you do hear about Islam on a daily basis. Uh, and that has to do with the Muslim agenda. And so uh, that is another thing that I kind of want to eventually get to, especially when we get to the doctrine 
uh, of jihad. But, um, you know, when you think about uh, Islam and its influence, now how many of you are seeing more and more Muslims at Walmart, right? More and more hijabs walking around. And we do evangelism, uh, Wally, at different campuses, universities, colleges around here. We go to Rich, Rich, Richland. I, I, I always get it confused with Richmond. So Richland, we go to Fair, Fairhaven. Uh, we go to UNT, of course. And I tell you what, at Rich, Richland College, for example, we, we do evangelism indoors in the cafeteria there. And uh, I, I was taken back. I mean, I'm looking at the cafeteria, and there's just an, a sea of, of scarves, of, of uh, hijabs, and ladies dressed in sometimes full veil. And I just couldn't believe what I was looking at. This is in Dallas. Yes, sir. They all in the hospitals and the, uh, in, like, governor, governor uh, buildings and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, we'll get into, um, maybe talk about a little bit about how elaborate Islamic infiltration is. Um, and this is why it's so important is because there is a plan. Uh, it is not just this disorganized thing. There is an agenda behind this. Uh, and I'm not talking about conspiracy theory. I'm literally talking about Islamic theology. Um, Islamic theology. Uh, there was um, back in, the, uh, back in the, the, the 30s and really the 20s and the 30s when the Muslim Brotherhood began, all the way back to those days, there was already a plan being devised by Muslim radicals, well, we call them radicals, but they just think of themselves as devoted Muslims, they, they devised a plan to take over the West in a century. And so they, they, they want to take over Europe, they want to take over America. Well, you know, this is a little Sunday school class. But we need to get educated and we need to at least know and be equipped and, and, and begin to try to understand some of the origins, the historical origins of Islam. You know, after I got involved in Muslim apologetics, I visited, oh, I don't know, maybe half a dozen mosques, maybe more. And I, I've sat with imams, and I've debated these guys for hours on end. And uh, they are very, very serious about their religion, and they are also very, very serious about your religion. Uh, the madrasas is where the Muslims come together in mass to study and to equip themselves. And at the madrasas, they get together and they talk about how to refute Christianity. That's priority number one. So how to refute Christianity. And so they are studying these types of things. Uh, I would say probably the, 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 the most well-known scholar that we know of right now in Islam is a gentleman by the name of Shabir Ali. How many of you have heard of Shabir Ali? Well, the reason I mentioned Shabir Ali is because when you get on the internet and you look around at different people that are representing Islam, you get some really, really wild kind of characters, okay? But Shabir Ali is a bit different. He's very studious. He's very scholarly. Uh, as a matter of fact, right now in Toronto, he's actually pursuing a PhD um, in, um, in, in, in something, either philosophy or, or uh, even uh, history or he, he all, all for the purpose of gaining more credibility uh, and opening more platforms for him to debate and introduce Islam and I've I've listened to hours of teachings by Shabir Ali he's very very smart very educated very smart very advanced he's light years ahead of pretty much any other Muslim scholar in the world and uh, he knows a little bit about the Greek New Testament. He knows a little bit about the history of the Bible. He knows a little bit about our textual criticism, the manuscript evidence of the Bible, things like that. So, um, and of course, he is in turn training, you know, others to do, to do likewise. So I hope to kind of interact with some of these arguments to give you um, the information I think that you're going to need and to understand that Islam basically exists on a three-legged stool. Yes, that's a stool. Don't make fun of it. Okay. And what is the three-legged stool? The three-legged stool for Islam is Allah, that's the Islamic God, Muhammad, that's the prophet of Islam, and the Quran, that is the book of Islam. That's the three-legged stool upon which Islam is <clears throat> Islam. It stands on this, okay? So what we want to do is we want to begin to discredit 
foundation of Islam. We want to begin to discredit, to show that Allah is not the true and living God and that he does not go back to the Abrahamic tradition. So that is one attack. That's one way that we can attack Islam and, and defend ourselves against it. Number two, to point out that Muhammad is not a, uh, what they call a Rasul Allah. He is not the prophet of Allah. He is not a true prophet. And of course, the Quran is not the, the revelation of God, the revelation of Allah. Um, it is not the word of God. So if we can discredit and start undermining these things, uh, then we can certainly begin to become equipped. Now, any questions before I move on? Sure. Any, anything at all? Chris, you always got something going on. In... It's pretty straightforward, right? Yeah, I've seen a few different spellings of Quran in, in English. Yeah, you might... You What's might... kind of the preferred that... You might see it spelled like that, Quran, you know, Quran. What's, what's preferred? That way we're not hindering our witness. When we're uh, I would spell it like writing. this. This is most common, Q-U-R-A-N, yeah. Uh, what's funny about Muslims is that they don't respect Westerners' <coughs> attempt to either speak Arabic, pronounce Arabic, <laughs> or spell Arabic. They, they, they don't appreciate any of it. Uh, at any time and every time really that I've been engaged with a Muslim in a deep conversation and I try to refer to somebody like um, Al-Tabari, the Hadith, the traditions, you know, of Islam. Uh, and they say, oh, that's not how you say that, you know, or whatever. It's like, okay, look, man, I don't speak Arabic, you know. Uh, we'll get to that. Um, one question that you want to ask Muslims, uh, a very common question is to ask them, do you read Arabic? Okay, because as much as they might want to show, oh, you don't understand this or you don't understand that, you should ask them. You should ask them if they read Arabic. And I can't tell you how many Muslims will tell you, no, I, I don't read Arabic. I, I, I try, you know, to read the Quran and this and that. I listen to it in Arabic, but because uh, there's a tradition, you know, there's a teaching in Islam that if you do not read the Quran in Arabic, you are not reading the original Word of God. Arabic is the Arabic is the heavenly tongue. It is the language of Allah. Arabic is, is the purest religion on earth. Okay? And so God revealed his book in Arabic, uh, which is also, by the way, not true, as hopefully I'll be able to point out. There's words in the Quran that are not of Arabic origin whatsoever. They're Syriac. They're, um, you know, they're, 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 they're different uh, etymology. In other words, they come from different sources, different languages, etymologically speaking, a certain word, you know, like, like Adam, Adam, is not an Arabic word, yet it's in the Quran. So the Quran has not, it's got Persian in it, it's got non-Arabic words in uh, the quote-unquote Arabic book. So these are all uh, just the types of problems that Muslims uh, cannot deal with, really. Did somebody have a question? Did you have a question? You, you touched on it. Regarding the heavenly language, because okay. that, that's a lot of the argument that I get. That's you know, right. Unless you read it in that language, you're not really reading that's right. Allah's word. Yeah, that's right. Um, let's see. For time's sake, today what I want to do is just kind of expose us a little bit to um, uh, the Muslim challenge and just talk a little bit um, briefly here on the statistics that what, what we're looking at, okay, the st statistically speaking. Right now, uh, there, is, there is approximately 1.6 billion Muslims on the planet. 1.6 billion Muslims on the planet. And of course, that number, kind of like our national debt, is always going up. <laughs> so, uh, Muslims are a, a massive portion of our planet. Okay? And um, let me tell you why this is important. There's so many levels of why, not just infiltration or immigration or those kinds of things, why it's important. Uh, Josh Lingle, the friend I told you that kind of took me under his wing, he sat with a group of apologists, very famous apologists, men that you would recognize, like maybe you wouldn't like them too much, but men like J.P. Moreland or William Lane Craig and Josh McDowell and some of these guys. And he said, you know, <clears throat> he sat there listening to this whole board meeting of apologists and and what direction to take apologetics for the nation, and, and these kinds of things. Well, they were all enamored, they were enamored with relativism, evolution, atheism, okay? And Josh said that he asked a question in that meeting, and he said, you know, of all of those people, how many of those people represent the worldview of 
people on earth, of, of population that makes up the earth? Well, just a thin little slice of people actually hold to atheism, okay, that are actually atheists, okay? The rest of the pie is <coughs> made up of three very, very large groups. You want to guess who they are? They are Buddhists, they are Hindu, and they are Muslim. That is the majority of the world, of, of people's worldviews on earth. And yet, American apologists want to settle for a tiny little slice of, of people's worldviews. And they don't want to tackle these. Uh, tell, me, tell me if you can name a book that was written to refute Hinduism. <laughs> and what, who's the author? Right? John, can you name a book on atheism? On atheism? Yeah. There's a lot on the new atheisms, but I can't think of any. Right? There's not a lot. I can think of a lot of them. You know, Greg Bonson's is written really for atheism and, you know, relativism and things like that. Um, uh, Albert Moeller wrote a book on the new atheism. You know, there's all kinds of books written on this issue of atheism, but very little people are engaging the vast majority of the people on the planet. We don't want to tackle Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam. Yes, sir? Is that probably just because we're so, we're so American-centric in our thinking? Like, we just look at America, we say secular humanism is dominating the culture and is trying to take over, so that's kind of what we're battling against. Yes. Without having sight of the world. Right. Yeah, we don't have a global perspective. Uh, so a little missiology, you know, we don't really have a global perspective as Americans, um, but God does, you know. I was just listening to an interview the other night on um, talking about the Reformed churches that are exploding in China. This is great. Uh, the Chinese underground churches are exploding, number one. Um, I've, I've mentioned this before. It is estimated that there are possibly more Christians underground living and existing in China than there are people in America. So that Christianity is no longer a white, European, uh, Anglo-Saxon religion. It is now, uh, Christianity is now an Asian, African religion. The demographics have completely changed. And God has done this, you know. And as Americans, I mean, you know, it's like God is almost saying like, look, you know, if you don't want to leave your comforts and do the things I'm calling the church to do, fine, I'll, I'll go to the Asians. <laughs> I'll get it. I'll get the Great Commission done with the Chinese. They're ready to die, you know. Um, don't don't get condemned, okay? Because, <laughs> because you know I've been to Africa and I've been in the bush, and you know I'm not in any hurry to go back there. But uh, <clears throat> but uh, we're talking about big things here, so we can take big shots, okay? But uh, 1.6 billion Muslims. Uh, how about America? How about America? Estimates, some I read, that there are, oh, that's wrong, wrong letter. There are possibly up to 12 million Muslims in America. What's a low estimate on that? Seven. So, <clears throat> that's a, not a huge population, but it is increasing. It is increasing. And one of the reasons why I speak on this subject, I go and speak at churches on this issue, I've done several training for different churches on this issue, is because not only do I love the people I'm talking to, like in here, but I love your children. Because your children will grow up in a wildly different world than you. And I'm speaking about the influence of Islam. You think what's bad now, you can't turn on the news without something about some Muslim, some terrorist, some, you know, Osama bin Laden or something, or some uh, Middle East conflict. Give it 25 years. Okay? Uh, again, this is not to strike some sort of alarmist tone, but Muslims are very smart. Muslims are populating very heavily in inner cities. You say, well, I don't see them so much out here in Frisco and Prosper. It's real nice out here. I don't see a whole bunch of them. But you start going into inner cities, um, and you come to understand there's actually a whole subculture going on in the major cities of the West 
all the way from Europe to America, that Muslims have a philosophy of how to infiltrate, and that is you go to the major metropolitan cities, and you go there and you gather and you populate, because here's, here's what's behind it all. What is that? Sharia. What is Sharia? Islamic law. Islamic law. But in, in, whenever Muslims dwell in huge populations, it doesn't matter if they are living, actually living officially under the Sharia, governed by Islamic law, meaning it's not the law of the land, but they form subcultures and colonies that secretly live out the Sharia. Um... In Michigan, they have underground Sharia courts. They're practicing Islamic law right under our nose. And um, this is why they gather in communities. And the youth, so if you're a teenager and you belong to a very traditional Muslim family, there's a consensus and there's this consciousness that is imparted to the youth. And that, and that, consens- that, that consciousness is... You, you, train up their, you train up a child, you train up a child in the way he should go, but you train up the youth of Islam with this mentality that you do not leave the community, the ummah. You don't leave the community of, Islam, of Muslims in dense populations. You don't stray from there. You stay there so that a Sharia mentality and a Sharia colony can be established. <laughs> See, we don't think like this, but they do. <laughs> Day and night, they think like this. Day and night, they think like this. So um, this is going to get into, okay, what is Islam? Um, what, is, what is Islam? What is it? Um, number one. I have a question real quick. Yes, sir. Would Sharia be analogous to first century um, Jerusalem? where the Jews kind of had their legal system in place that was underneath the Romans government system. So it's kind of a dual authority. Uh, kind of. The only difference of that Sharia is that the fundamental tenet of Sharia is that it will eventually dominate the earth. So the Jews didn't have a mandate to go and conquer, you know, the whole world. You know what I mean? They were to be a light. They were to be a covenant community. But Sharia is very much about taking over. We'll get to some of those things like dimitude, what it means to live under the Sharia if you're not Muslim. Um, But when when you think about Islam, um, if you think first and foremost about doctrine or theology or something like that, you may want to stop and consider that Islam is a culture, okay, when you adopt Islam, you are adopting a whole way of life, a culture. What do I mean by that? Everything changes for you when you become a Muslim. Obviously, if you're a woman, immediately the way you dress changes. If you really want to be devoted to Islam, you must wear the, shah- the, the hijab. You should be veiled. And then along with that is that you have to begin to prepare yourself for a life of segregation where men and women are segregated, even in the mosque. You go into a mosque, men pray over there, women pray over there. Okay, so, you know, I remember visiting a mosque here in Fort Worth, I think I've told you this story before, where I was greeted by a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Texas, you know, lady who said, how y'all doing today? (laughs) I'm at the mosque? (laughs) And she started taking us around the mosque and showing us around, and um, she started kind of talking out loud about what she loves about Islam. Oh, I just love it. It's so fun. And, you know, I just, I love the dress and the hijab. And, you know, I love the, I just love the culture, and I love the, the, the history of it. It's so pleasant, and the morality of it is so pleasant, you know, all of these things. And I started kind of asking her very pointed questions uh, about whether or not she was aware of this or aware of that or aware of this in the Quran, and she knew nothing. She literally knew nothing about the Quran. And she actually started writing these things down as I was talking. And I told you later, she actually, in front of me, she asked the imam, which is like the, the pastor in the, in, the, in the mosque, the spiritual leader, she asked the imam right in front of me these questions. You know, uh, Emilio said that um, the Quran says that uh, a woman only gets, uh, you know, quarter of the inheritance 
Emilio said that you know husbands are allowed to beat their wives. You know, I'm just thinking, and my face is turning red. What do you say? What do you say? To be continued. Are women allowed to read the Quran on their own? Uh, yes, they are. They are. And um, you know, another story. I remember watching. I think I told you about this. This basically the equivalent of an altar call in Australia. Uh, Islam is exploding in Australia. Did you guys see what happened last month? And was it last month? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the gentleman that took over that uh, that coffee shop, shop or whatever, and ended up killing a couple people and then himself and all of that. It's terrorism. It's jihad. But uh, Islam is exploding in Australia, and they had the equivalent of an altar of an altar car, like an evangelism outreach. Okay, for Islam, the Imam invites all these people to come up and receive Islam. And the way that you receive Islam is that you you recite what is known as the Shahada. Shahada. The Shahada is the Muslim prayer that says. You know, al-alilah, al-alilah, you know, something like that. And it basically means there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger or Muhammad is his prophet. You know, uh, that is basically what you must recite and pledge allegiance to now. And I'll never forget these, you know, these young, you know, Australian <coughs> kids are up there, you know, just teenagers really. And they're doing this, and then they're celebrating after they say that they recite the Shahada. And the, the Imam that was speaking goes by, and he's shaking everybody's hand. Well, he's shaking the men's hands. Then he comes to a young lady that was so enthusiastic about what she just did, she reached out her hand to shake his hand. And the gentleman goes, Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no. Skipped her, went to the next man. She doesn't understand what she just did. <laughs> In Islam, Women don't shake men's hands. <laughs> in Islam, women don't even look at men in the eye. Uh, Islam is a very misogynistic religion, very much so. Um, women are looked upon as property. Um, women are the equivalent of cattle uh, in the Quran and in the Hadith. Sorry, that's, that's a fact. Um, so... It is a culture, it is a whole culture. How you dress, the food that you eat, your hygiene, how you wash, how you go to the restroom. Everything changes in Islam. So your whole world changes. So imagine you're sitting here talking to a Muslim, Muslim guy or Muslim girl and you're telling them to leave Islam, what you're asking them to do. You're not just asking them to go from you know, one set of doctrine to another set of doctrine. You are asking them to leave their entire way of life down to, the, down to how they wash their hands. You are asking them to leave everything they know, including how they eat and when they eat, how they pray and when they pray, and in what posture that they pray. So you're asking them to literally um, leave their entire identity behind. But that is exactly what we're asking them, right? That's exactly what Jesus said, right? You have to die to the world. You have to, you have to take up your cross and follow him, or else you're not worthy to be his disciple. And so that is what Islam is. It is mainly a culture. Also understand that Islam teaches divine dominion. Divine dominion. And it's different than maybe what our concept of divine <coughs> dominion is. See, we believe that God will dominate we believe in the dominion of God, but we believe that God will usher in that dominion at the end of the age. He will, you know, the kingdom, what does Revelation say? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God, right? But that's not what Islam believes. Islam is kind of like post-millennialism on crack. <laughs> if there's any post-millennialists in here, don't take offense to that, but you know what I mean. It's like Reconstructionism on crack, theonomy on crack. It is literally that there is a divine mandate that is placed upon you, on your shoulders, that you are to go out and that you are to overthrow the earth for Allah. Have you seen the guys in Europe? Um, I've seen some radical videos of Muslims in Europe holding up signs, Islam will dominate. Mm -hmm. Okay, where's that coming from? That's coming from their theology of this divine obligation that they have. Let me read you some Quranic verses. In Surah 8, Ayah 28, so 
chapter, chapter and verse. Chapters are surahs and verses are ayahs. Okay, so surah, ayah, that's the way that they speak, chapter, verse. So surah 8.28 says, fight them, speaking of the infidel, speaking of the unbeliever, until there is no fitna. Fitna is the word that means rebellion, and it stands for rebellion against Islamic rule, Islamic domination. Fight them until there is no fitna, and until the religion, all of it, is for Allah. That is an all-encompassing, comprehensive calling for Muslims to uh, fight in the way of Allah until all religion, it says, is for Allah. You see that? So, you ever wonder, like, what's driving these people? <laughs> right? You just see what's going on in the Middle East and, and just the chaos and the, the hatred and the, 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 the beheadings and all this stuff. And you tend to wonder, what is possessing these people? What's possessing these people is theology. Theology matters. You know? Theology matters. Surah 9, Ayah 33 he it is who has sent his messenger with the guidance and the religion of truth, that he may cause it to prevail over all religion, however much the idolaters may be adverse. Another one, Surah 61, Ayah 11. You should believe in Allah and his messenger, and you should strive for the cause of Allah with your wealth and your lives. That is better for you if you did but know. There's actually a surah that, that says, fighting is prescribed for you, even if you dislike it. That is so, to me, that's so diabolical. Because what Muslims are under, they're under this compulsion that they must engage in jihad even if they don't want to. I mean, think about it. You get to a tipping point in a society where all of a sudden, um, and this has happened. Uh, this has happened, for example, uh, just recently in ISIS with what's going on with ISIS, the northern city of Mosul was largely a Christian city. And because of ISIS, do you know how many Christians there are in Mosul today? Zero. Every single Christian has either been killed or driven out. And I can't, can you imagine maybe some Muslim that was there in proximity that tolerated, maybe even liked some of the Christians that were there, but then Islam got to such a tipping point that they had to engage in aggression. Um, did you have a question? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that last surah that you mentioned, was that 6111? 6111, yeah, yes, sir. And now, now often when we go out with the and we run into a lot of Muslims at UNT. Yeah. They'll open up the verse that says, let there be no compulsion in right. religion. Right. What do we do with that in light of the other verses? Right. Uh, and then... Uh... Bear with me. <coughs> Bear with me here, okay? Robert asked a very important question. So if you can't read this, it's first Medina, second Medina. Okay, that, that stands for the first Medinan period. Okay, Medina is a city that Muhammad went to after preaching in Mecca. Having, how many of you have heard of Mecca? How many of you have heard of Medina? Sometimes it's called Yathrib. Okay, that's the original name of it. But, uh, so he went to Medina to escape persecution from the, from the pagans that were in Mecca. And when he got to Medina, he began preaching, um, uh, he began to preach the way of Allah in a peaceful, non-compulsive manner. So what, we're, what you need to do when you come to the Quran and, is ask, does that verse, does that passage that, uh, that Robert is talking about, does that belong to the first Meccan period? If it does, that means that you will find passages that speak of peaceful propagation. If a verse talks about the second Medinan period, then you may find verses that speak about self-defense. Because by the time the second Medinan verses or surahs, chapters, 
were written down, by that time Muhammad had already gained political and military clout. So he was able to defend himself against other nomadic tribes in Arabia. Okay? And if you get to a Meccan, a Meccan um, chapter, then that is where you hear all-out war against infidels like Surah 8 and Surah 9. And here's the clincher. The, the, the Muslims believe in the doctrine of abrogation. They believe that whatever theology came last is the theology that lasts. <laughs> so if the Meccan verses were revealed last, which they were, not only do they replace the Medinan verses, but they have, they have precedence over those verses. So no compulsion in religion? Well, not exactly, because these verses were revealed later. Now, this is how they still use this system, is they would say every Muslim, every Muslim is in, this, in these stages. This is where the stages of jihad come from, okay? And they, what they say is that all Muslims, like I would say Muslims in America today, are in this initial Medinan phase. Peaceful propagation, infiltration, immigration, uh, you know, those types of things. Um, you propagate Islam through dawah. Dawah is basically Muslim evangelism, dawah. And then eventually a, a community of Muslims, the ummah as it's called, will get to a point where they're able to defend themselves and be a force. I would say in London right now, in, in the UK, they are nearing the stage. And then eventually they'll get to a Meccan phase where they are able to overthrow this is what the Muslim Brotherhood did in Egypt back in the 60s. They got to a place where they thought, we can overthrow the nominal m compromised Muslim leaders in Egypt, overthrow them, and establish the Sharia. And they tried to do that. They, had, they ended up actually assassinating the president. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Zaid Qutb was hung for plotting and for doing this. Okay? Uh, Zaid Qutb is... Very important. We'll come back to Kutub later. Don't you love these names? I love these names. I, <laughs> I wish I spoke Arabic. I mean, I really did. Uh, it's just too much. I'm still trying to learn Hebrew, for crying out loud. I don't have time for Arabic. But, uh, <clears throat> um, okay, let's, let's, um, let's do one more thing here, okay? One more thing, and that is jihad. That is jihad. We talked a little bit about it already, so when we say, what is Islam? Islam is a culture. Islam is a mandate to, to dominate the world through divine dominion, a, a divine summons. But then there is also jihad. This is very important. This is what everybody wants to know about. What about jihad? Well, yes, there is a... The, the word jihad means what? Struggle. Struggle. It means struggle, and so it can have two aspects. It can speak of a personal struggle within, kind of like what we would call sanctification. And then there's a struggle outside with the world. And that is what we would look at as violence and violent aggression. So jihad uh, is not just, don't let any Muslim ever fool you into thinking that jihad is simply a spiritual struggle to be a better Muslim. No, 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 no. Um, how many of you guys have heard of Anjum Hudari or Anjum Chowdhury? Depends who you ask. Um, Anjum Chowdhury was a, a, a Muslim imam out of the UK, and he was very outspoken. And I actually kind of like Chowdhury because he told the truth yeah. unapologetically. Uh, he'd be on you know, the, the media, he'd be on the news, talk shows, with moderate Muslims who are trying to dupe the people to believe that jihad is just a personal struggle. And Chowdhury would be like, what are you talking about? You know, have you read Surah 49, Surah 47, where it talks about chopping off the head of the infidel? Have you read, you know, Surah uh, uh, 96 that says that among the Christians and the Jews that they are the most vile of Allah's creatures? Uh, there's no pretending, you know, with a guy like Chowdhury. So, so, you know, don't fall for this line, you know. It's just a personal struggle, kind of like you trying to become a better Christian. No, it's not. <laughs> because to become a better Christian doesn't mean I go lop off anybody's head. Okay, so that's included in jihad. 
And so, like I said, jihad has various stages from peace to aggression. And then the last thing I want to talk about, what is Islam, because this is important for us, is this word called dimitude. Dimitude comes from a word, uh, dimmi, dimmi. Who is the dimmi? The dimmi is the person, the word dimmi just means one who is subjugated. Who is the dimmi in the Quran? The dimmi in the Quran is anyone who is forced to live under the Sharia. And in the Quran, we are told that people who are forced to live under Islamic rule must feel themselves uh, humiliated or uh, oppressed or subjugated. You know, because it's one thing, right? It's like, why can't Muslims... Okay, uh, you live in Yemen. Sure, it's all Muslim there. Okay, well, why can't somebody like a, a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Christian go there and be like, okay, look, I, I'm not trying to undermine the Sharia. I will, you know, I will abide by it and, and just let me live in peace. Why don't they let people live in peace? It's because you, in the eyes of a real Muslim who is, has the upper hand in a culture, you are a dhimmi. You are one that is supposed to feel the boot of Islam on your neck. You're supposed to feel subjugated, you see? So, dimitude uh, uh, also means that you have to pay taxes in order to live and survive under the Sharia. The tax is called jizya. Jizya. Right? Oh, sorry, one, one letter wrong, one letter missing there. The jizya, this is the tax that unbelievers, everybody see that? Jizya. This is the tax that unbelievers have to pay Muslims in order to survive. Yes, sir. A Christian living in a Sharia community, would Romans 13 compel them to pay the tax and to live under the Sharia? Um, yes. Yeah, I think so. If you're going to live there and the Sharia and the, the jizya operates in a systematic fashion, I mean... Wasn't it oppressive of Rome to make you, force you to pay taxes to Caesar? I mean, Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. There's no sin in paying tax, okay, even if you live under oppression. You know what I mean? I mean we can make a whole theology, I mean, we could do a whole thing on the oppression of Rome. I mean, gee, <laughs> you know, I don't know which one's worse. You know what I mean? Um, part of being a citizen of Rome is that you had to eventually pledge allegiance to the lordship of Caesar. And Jesus is telling you to pay taxes under that. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, a good, that's a good question. Okay, let's back up and briefly... Oh, boy, I'm out of time. Instead, what I want to do is just focus on <clears throat> some of the sources, okay, and understand where does Islam get its ideas? Well, of course, number one, the Quran. Number two is the Hadith. The Hadith is Muslim tradition that was compiled after the life of Muhammad. Now the earliest sources that we have of Muslim Hadiths or of, of the Hadiths that speak about the traditions, uh, that speak about the sayings, that speak about the deeds of Muhammad after his death are pretty far removed. I mean you're talking about 8th, 9th century. Okay, A.D. Um, also, bear in mind that for a Muslim, we, we say B.C., A.D., to date things, they have, they have A.H. and B.H. What does the H stand for? The H stands for the word Hijra. What is the Hijra? The Hijra is a word that means flight. Light. And it literally speaks of when Muhammad was in Medina and Muslims were in Mecca and in the year 622 they met in the, in the desert at night and they 
they met to reunite and to get together, and that is called the flight of the Hijra, where Muslims say this is when Islam began. It didn't begin at the birth of, of Muhammad. Muhammad was born in 570. The Hijra took place in 622, and they would say that is when Islam began. And so to them, they don't have AD and BC, they have AH and BH, okay? That's what they have. So the Hadith comes to this time, and the Hadith is basically the tradition of Islam. Now learn something very important. We'll deal with more of this in the future. You don't have the Quran without the Hadith. It's almost like I want you all to say it. We don't have the Quran without the Hadith. <laughs> it's a catch-22. Because without the Hadith, you do not know where the Quran came from. You do not know who compiled it. You do not know who got the manuscripts together. You don't know who, who wrote it, who, who recited it, who, who were the people that memorized it. You have no history of the Quran without the Hadith. This is, for certainly, this is, in logic, what's known as a catch-22. The reason why is because the Hadith is not reliable. The, the Hadith is not reliable. It has many contradictions and many absurdities in it that show you this is not divinely inspired history. I mean, there... Um, People have written books on the absurdities of the hadith. For example, there's a hadith that teaches if you swallow the wing of a fly, it has poison in it. But don't worry, the antidote is in the other fly, uh, the other wing. <laughs> so, so hurry and swallow the other wing because that possesses, that has the antidote to the poison that the first wing had. <laughs> The, the, the hadith also teaches that if you fall asleep during prayer, Satan can enter through your nose. Have you heard of uh, Aladdin? The genie? Right, that funny genie. Who was it? Was that Robin Williams? Yes. Lord have mercy. But uh, Yeah, he committed suicide, right? Yeah. But the genie, where does the genie come from? It's in the Quran. It's called the jinn. The jinn were evil spirits that floated around and cast curses on people. The Muslim world has many absurdities, folklore, nonsense in it. Um, that in five minutes I just can't go through the whole list. But these are the two big ones, the Quran and the Hadith. Next week, Lord willing, we will... Um, We'll tackle the rest of Islamic sources because there are, there are so many. Um, you need to know uh, that when you're talking to a Muslim and you say, oh yeah, doesn't it say in the Hadith in Buhari, volume 6, that um, Zaid ibn Tabit had the manuscripts of the Quran burned and he even took the manuscripts from Hassa and he took the manuscript from Ibn Masud and Ubay ibn Kab and he burned the codices. Why did he do that? A Muslim will look at you and go, what? Yeah. How do you know all that? And all you did was you read one book on the subject. See what I'm saying? In other words, it gives you massive credibility to be able to talk to a Muslim about his book, his history, his traditions. Muslims listen when they hear that you know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, unlike the, the, the relativism of our society, the postmodernism, Muslims are trained to engage in dialogue and debate. They don't shy away from a debate unless they're just really nominal and really westernized and they don't, you know, they're... Look, look, you have nominal Muslims just like you have nominal Christians. People that call themselves Christians but they don't act like it, right? Catholics, call themselves Catholics but they don't care about their religion. And you know that because you think you're in for a good juicy debate then you find out they don't even care about what Catholicism teaches. Well, the same thing for Islam. We meet them all the time at UNT. Uh, Muslims that say they're Muslim, but they're so westernized that they don't care to talk about their religion or defend it. But if you get with a real Muslim, they will sit there. I was talking to a young Muslim student at UNT from Saudi Arabia. He had been here for three months, and 
he never had a conversation with a Christian before where the Christian was challenging him that Islam is not true, Muhammad is not God's messenger, and Allah is not God. And I asked him, have you ever heard any of this? And he says, never. No one has ever shared with you the gospel of Jesus Christ and explained it to you. No. He said, this is why I'm here. I'm in America because I want to learn. You know? You guys, we have an incredible opportunity. The unreached are here. They're among us. You don't got to jump on a plane and go to the ends of the earth. Yeah. They're coming here at, in the droves. And um, come out to UNT with us. We'll, you'll see. So anyway, let's pray and then we'll go. Well, Heavenly Father, uh, above everything, we want to be um, good soldiers of Jesus Christ. We want to be workmen that don't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We want to be like the Apostle Paul, who was able to quote the pagan poets by memory. We want to be defenders. We want to be apologists. We want to be those that are able, as Peter tells us, to give a defense, to give a reason, to give an apologia for the hope that is in us. And Lord, we know that Islam is not going away. And we know that Islam is something that we all need to understand and we need to learn in and grow. We need to be educated, Lord. God forbid that the people of God would be the ignorant people in society. No, Lord, we need to understand and we need to be educated in these things because we're going to run into a Muslim eventually. We're going to have a conversation with a neighbor, a coworker, a student. We're going to run into somebody at, at the store and uh, Lord, we want to be ready. So Father, give us faithfulness. Bless our worship, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.